When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, this is Carmen of Peace, and, uh, you know, my buddy Jay Scott is on the hook. He rocks. Check it out. Hey everybody, what's going on? Welcome back to the Hook Rocks, the Ultimate Rock Community Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Scott. Thank you very much for tuning in on our two-year anniversary show. I appreciate all my listeners, all you guys for checking in, all you guys for following me. I really do appreciate it. We have a great episode lined up for you today. Uh, Before we begin, just wanted to make mention we are part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can check out all the latest and old episodes of The Hook Rocks, along with the podcast for Vinnie Apice and Carmen Apice, and Shout Out Loudcast, Cobra's on Fire, Martin Popoff, and Mistress Carrie. Also, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. Write us a review if you're so inclined. We do appreciate it. My next guest is a guitar legend, and I'm so excited that he's uh, agreed to do our anniversary episode because we're going to have a conversation that I've been wanting to have with him for quite a while, and that is the legendary guitar player, George Lynch. What's going on, George? Hey, congratulations. Well, thank you, man. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, I've been doing this for two years now. Wow, yeah, that takes some dedication. Yeah, the the uh, the story goes is that my son was getting older. He was fourteen at the time, and he was developing his independence as as he should. So you know, he wanted to spend more time with his friends, and I had to make the choice: either find a girlfriend or start a podcast. So I started a podcast. Ooh, you sure that was the right choice? I think so. <laughs> yeah. Well, probably less up and. Ups and downs. Yes. More yes. consistency. Yes, more consistency. Absolutely. Well, I'd like to... Uh, a long time. Yeah. You know, I um, thank you again for doing this. This is a conversation that we're going to have about uh, your activism and your involvement in the Native American community. Before we begin on that, though, just to 
kind of find out what's new, what's latest and greatest in your world. Um, I know you guys just got done with a run with Dokken under the George Lynch moniker. Um, is that something that you guys are going to proceed with as the name of the band, just under George Lynch? Um, no, no. We've changed it a couple of times since then, and we'll probably change it a couple more. Um, we're, we're, we're in a sort of a state of flux at the moment, transitioning from Lynch Mob to whatever we're going to be. Um, uh, so in the interim, we were just using my name, because it's really challenging to get universal information out equally to all parties involved, meaning promoters and agents and, you know, the publicists and, you know, people are printing up posters and doing web guys and everything. So you really want to have a unified front and, 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 and go out with one message and, you know, disseminate that all at the same time and have it be organized. Well, it didn't happen that way. <laughs> so, um, it's just been sort of a patchwork process. So where we're at right now um, is uh, the band is entitled George Lynch and the electric freedom or possibly George Lynch's electric freedom. We haven't figured that out. doesn't make a lot of difference, but it does make a difference when you're doing the artwork, of course. And uh, so uh, I think that will stick. Um, but the, the biggest change that we've uh, experienced is that we were, uh, intended to be a power trio and we went out and we did the shows that you spoke about with Doc and back east and everything went great it was fun um, but I really felt a void <laughs> you know both, both physically and otherwise um, and uh, you know I've, I've always been in quad type fan situations the classic Zeppelin um lineups, you know, and used to having a guy right in the middle of the stage who's the focus of attention, and, and the rest of us are sort of satellites, you know, in orbit around our lead singer, and um, so it was, um, since we didn't really grow up as a trio, and I, you know, I haven't played in a lot of trios, it just felt a little unnatural, um, not taking anything away from any of the elements involved, uh, um, you know, um, great, great band, but, um, uh, so since, um, we've added a singer who will be starting up with us, uh, first show with our new singer will be in, uh, at the Vegas show with Doc and Rita Ford and I believe Warren and some other 80s bands, uh, the festival in, in, uh, downtown, if you call it a festival or uh, not sure what you call it, but uh, it's an outdoor event, larger event. It's not a club. Um, so, uh, in the meantime, we've got one more show as a trio in Virginia uh, coming up. Um, I can't think of the date, um, but it's uh, coming up in uh, mid mid July, actually, it's July fifteenth, in uh, somewhere in Virginia. Who is and going then, to be uh, the new show right now? Uh, Will Martin from Earshot. Awesome. Now, he did your Kill uh, All Control album, and he was also on the Heavy Hitters album, too, as well. Correct, yeah. He sang most of the songs on the Heavy Hitters record that was released a few months ago on um, uh, Cleopatra Records, Deadline Records. Um, 
there's, I believe, two other singers on that record, but uh, Will did the majority of the, of the song, sang the majority of the song. And um, I think he did about a quarter or a third of the uh, songs um, on the Kill All Control record. So we have a history, and I've always wanted to play with Will. Um, never had the opportunity to do it in a live context. Um, and, uh, and it just, the ideas just sort of sprang up because I was talking to him. Um, we were talking about something else in communication. And I just thought, you know, this might be a good fit. So I talked to the other guys about it and, um, everybody was excited about trying it. And so uh, what, what I think this says about the band is, is, is really at this point in my life and, think I speak for the rest of them as well is that it's just really we're at, at you know in a final analysis you know we, we do this because we feel compelled to and we're creative people and we play these instruments and, and we love it and it's also how we make our living and and majority of the people like what we do so there you go it's a, it's a win-win on every front um uh, and as long as it can continue to be that, we'll continue to do it, and um, and not and take ourselves seriously, but at the same time, not be intractable. You know, not work our way into a corner that we can't back ourselves out of. You know, be a slave to something that we don't feel comfortable. With. So, name changes can come, personnel changes will come. <laughs> the past is evidence of the future, um, and. Um, you know, the, the set list will change probably daily, as has been happening. Um, and I guess it's really kind of a uh, an experiment and in, in, in a discovery of who we are at this point in our lives and having fun with it, much as we did when we were starting out, you know. So what I didn't want to do is have this be just a post-80s, post-early 90s recreation of what we were what the world was 35, 40 years ago. I didn't, I think that's somewhat sad, although I understand the value in it and we do some of that as well, but I wanted to make it more than that. And meaning the live um, experience of what a good band is at this point, George Lynch and freedom is just, you know, be free <laughs> Uh, to do what we want, you know, and, and that, that, whatever we, where we feel the creative muses leading us, you know, at that moment in time, um, not saying we're not thinking about it. We're not using our intellect and, and trying to, um, you know, have some, you know, manage some sort of structure. I mean, we do that to a certain extent, but we want to remain flexible and fluid. Um, so, uh, at the moment we've got basically a, like a hundred song master list. And that includes, you know, the necessary things like, you know, the bigger Lynch Mob songs like Wicked and River and maybe a few others. Uh, uh, a smattering of some of the, I say, newer quote-unquote Lynch Mob songs mean anything after Wicked Sensation or Second Record. So anything from the 90s or earlier 2000s up to the present. Um, even some reworked docking songs when we're not playing with docking. Um, for instance, we're, you know, we're, we're doing, uh, uh, 
you know, do uh, headline shows sometimes and play an hour and a half. So, um, you know, we'll throw Heaven Comes Down or uh, Tooth and Nail or Kiss of Death or something, but we'll do it in our own way. Um, or even, even alone again, do a ballad, you know, because Will's very melodic singer and um, it can be. And then uh, uh, in, in addition to that, I pull things from my catalog, you know, other projects. For instance, um, we're doing one song, uh, one of the songs off of uh, Heavy Hitters. We're doing something off, we may do something off Kill All Control. We may do something off Sacred Groove. Um, but we could do stuff off KXM if we wanted to, you know. Um, my vote is for smoking mirrors. Yeah, you know, I mean, here's the thing: we ha- we also do we have a pretty heavy um, uh, cover list that we pull from. So we try to pepper our set with a good amount of covers. So the last show we did, you know, Fleetwood Mac, Oh Well, Peter Green style. Uh, we did a war song that morphed into a, a Zeppelin song. Um, you know, we did a few covers. I can't remember all what they all were. We did a, I think we did a Susie Top song. I mean, we don't want to come off like a cover band, but I mean, these are songs that we grew up with. Literally, like when we were the kids in our bedroom playing guitar, this is stuff we learned from. So, um, you know, we peppered the set occasionally with some cover stuff. And then the other element is the jam element, which I talk about a lot and have been trying to, um, you know, include um, that into uh, our live performances for as long as I can remember, uh, back to the docking days and pre-docking days. So, um, you know, I don't want to be—I don't want to sound like I'm holding on to something that's in vain, but um, I really, truly believe that it's uh, uh, you know a form of performance that that we're good at that I feel that I can do well, um, especially when I'm firing on all cylinders. You know, my tone's good and I'm flowing. Um, you know, it's like jazz, you know. It's, uh, it's just, uh, you're, you're searching. You know, you're searching, listening to each other. And it's a whole different thing than just going out there and, you know, re-performing songs that you've played a thousand times and recorded decades ago. You recently... So I think it's a vital element of what we do. Yeah, you recently did a jam session, and you paid tribute to Eddie Van Halen with a, you know, a, a version or you know, kind of a version of "Ain't Talking About Love" in the George Lynch style. Is that kind of the element that you're looking for? Uh, well, I considered that a cover done at a, you know, at a meaningful moment in time because Eddie had just passed not right too long ago. So, um. But that wasn't premeditated. I mean, you know, that, again, as you mentioned, that was a, a um, off-the-cuff jam at the Dallas Guitar Show. Nothing, I mean, literally, I didn't even speak to the band before I walked on stage. <laughs> I mean, we had no rehearsals, we had no sound check, and we didn't even communicate. Like, uh, we didn't even communicate, you know, email or text or phone. It was just sort of like, these guys will be there on stage. I didn't know their names for the most part. <laughs> They're all wonderful, you know. We kind of met on stage, and and we just took off. So I couldn't even remember what we played, but 
It'd be fun. What was that like? It's been a second since I've been on stage. So, yeah. So. What was that like paying tribute to Eddie Van Halen? You guys have had a long-standing relationship, a long-standing friendship. You know, he had, he passed in the fall here, and you know, it was felt across the music community. And I, you know, with your relationship with him, what was you know going through that like when he when it was announced he passed? Yeah, yeah, I think, and I read and talked to other people who feel the same way. You know, we've all witnessed and continue to witness, you know, our compatriots uh, passing on, and uh, and this is accelerated. Obviously, recently, as we get older, and, you know, the pandemic and things like that. So, um, uh, yeah, it was this one hit all of us exceptionally hard, um, you know, because it was local, you know. Um, and so we had uh, history, you know, and commonalities scattered throughout our, you know, our time together. Um you know, shared gigs and hung out and, you know, borrowed, well, I speak for myself, I borrowed a lot from Eddie, as most of us have. So, yeah, it was, it was a profound, I don't know if the word is loss, is, is the right word, but, um, you know, I, I mean, my father passed away well, a few years ago and, you know, it wasn't at that level of a sense of loss, but it was the same. It wasn't like just reading about somebody in the paper and going, well, that sucks. <laughs> you know, um, it was uh, much more personal than that. And, um, you know, every time someone passes, especially when they have a, um, a really a, a big component of who you are as a player, you know, is, is because of that, you know, um, and when that person goes away, I mean, it sort of recalibrates all your points of reality for your existence, I think, you know, as it does when somebody close to you, you know, in your family dies, and I think, you know, you know father dies, it's like, you know, <laughs> that's, uh, that was really the foundation of what created everything that you are, you know, all those points of light and all those compass points and all those stories and all those uh, lessons and all the blood and all those genes and all those everything, memories and then everything uh, changes your thinking and how you perceive yourself and how you perceive the world and how you behave, I think. Um, so I think when Eddie passed, I, I think it was a, a little bit of a growing up moment for me. You know, we're not just all the kids in Hollywood playing the keggers and the, and the backyard parties and the clubs and competing with each other. Nobody's competing anymore. <laughs> when you're considering your own mentality, um, it's, it shifts, uh, competition shifts to a sense of um, shared communal thinking, I think, and um, the obligation to maybe do something meaningful rather than winning. Well, you know, you have been doing meaningful things over a long period of time, and, and that really is the you know the basis of this conversation and the reason why I wanted to have this conversation with you. Because back in 2015, you made a documentary called Shadow Nation, 
And it was about the struggle of the Native American and the history behind that struggle. And it moved me. It really did because it was different in that it was really in it, right? I mean, you were really like engaged with those that are really affected. I mean, you saw the faces, you saw the lines on their faces in this documentary, you saw their struggle and their pain and you wanted to shed light on it. And it was, you know, a different side of you that not many people realize there was, and not many people have really talked to you about as far as that documentary goes, you know, when did this passion for, you know, being a political activist and, and going, you know, and talking with the native American community, when did that start with you? Well, there wasn't any one point uh, in my life that it really, you know, it wasn't like a light switch. Something switched off and switched on, um, or there wasn't any, uh, you know, aha moment of realization. Um, I was raised in a family of empaths. <laughs> Uh, arguably, uh, parents were sort of hippie-esque and um, progressive for the most part in their politics and philosophies and were always searching and reading and looking for answers and challenged us to do the same and take care of people, you know, uh, other than, you know, our closest circle, but our compassion is sort of spread out in the widest circle possible. Which, in a sense, when, in some ways goes against human nature, I think. It conflicts with the survival instinct to some extent. Um, but um, I was always taught that, and in, in addition to that, uh, it was taught to always be, you know, um, hopeful. Um, um, and believe or even assume, I guess assumption would be the word, 51% of people will do the right thing for the most people most of the time. <laughs> There's that 51 to 90, 49% equation that over the long arc of history, Martin Luther King said, you know, you know, humanity will bend towards justice, I'm paraphrasing. But, um, and uh, so based on all those things, I, I have always cared about and worked for in some small way, in my own small way, and not enough, but in some way, for environmental, social, and economic justice. And um, at least on the personal level. And then uh, later in life, um, after I got done being an 80s rock star, which I still at that point cared, you know, I still backpacked and I read and, you know, all the right stuff and had beliefs, but didn't, those were not, um, those didn't transcend my personal, you know, space. I mean, I didn't, you know, my thought processes along those lines didn't enter into or conflict with um, my rock stardom and, and music I was making. Like that. Um, so, uh, that didn't happen until really, I would say, sacred group uh, when I started thinking that I had an obligation to use my music as a vehicle, which is sort of a classic dynamic, I think, uh, uh, when you think in history, think in history historically, 
you know, you, you probably conjure up some examples of, you know, people that were entertainers or actors or artists or musicians or whatever, uh, that chose, you know, the sweet spot in their career, then they grew a conscience and started to do good things. It's an evolution, evolution of their character or, or their, their work ethic and working towards greater good and those kinds of things. I think you see lots of examples in history. And, um, and I felt that urgency uh, around the time uh, that I wrote and recorded the Sacred Groove record, which is my uh, uh, solo album, the first solo album that I did after uh, the second Mishmael record for Electric Records. And, um, you know, I had a few songs on that record that uh, Cry of the Brave, We Don't Own This World, that directly dealt with environmental Native American issues and other things. Um, and, uh, you know, I got a lot of flack for those songs. I, I think people give me, some, they, they, they cut me some slack because they like me, they like my guitar playing or my history or whatever it is. And so, you know, people give you a couple of passes, I think. And I have to agree that, you know, look, I'm not good at doing that. I'm not Rage Against the Machine. I'm not Bob Dylan. I'm not Hendrix. I'm not Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and Neil Young. I, I don't have this natural aptitude to translate my political or philosophical beliefs into music. I can use music as a vehicle to um, sort of be a mouthpiece for, for my ideas, for my uh, activism. I'm actually really, really bad at it. So I um, have spent the last few decades trying to get a little bit better at it without beating myself up too much for not being good at it. Um, you know, and I, I, I still haven't figured it out, quite honestly. I hate to admit that. But, um, and I think that the film, uh, without trying to sound negative, I'm just trying to be realistic, is, is also an example of that. You know, I, I probably had no business making the film. And, I mean, the ideas are right and, and they're truthful. And, and, and this and that. But whether or not that's going to convince anybody to do anything other than what we're already doing is debatable. Um, and a lot of people have done what I tried to do a thousand times better and with, <laughs> you know, questionable results. Yeah. You know, I mean, the great minds and, and, and the great activists, uh, you know, do they move the do they move the needle, or are we just you know all pushing against a you know a, an insurmountable tide, you know a force that uh, can maybe be subdued for a short amount of time? But um, you know, this I, I, in in later years I've come to just think about it in terms of its more basic components, like what drives this kind of thinking and behavior in all of us, including myself. And you have to look at yourself for signs because we're all made of the same, same constituents, obviously. Um, so that gets into another deeper dive subject. Um, but just on the surface, I would say that, you know, whether you're talking about Native American people or rich white people in power or um, your average poor person anywhere in the world is just struggling to get by 
or middle class uh, Westerners, you know, they're reaping a lot of the benefits of people that suffer around the world. Uh, not the amount of benefits that rich people do, but still, they're the bastion of, uh, they're the insulation between the rich and the poor that keeps the poor from eating the rich, I believe. So, you know, what keeps this whole thing working and ticking, and, and what is the prime mover in all of this? And it's, it's I think it's just people's brain wiring, you know, the way we've been wired and it'll right. change that, you know, we're not going to collectively rewire half the world's brain. Well, that we're really is, cortex yeah, more empathetic. that really is the underlying theme of the documentary is in order to improve this or help these people, we have to change our way of thinking. We have to change our way of thinking on how we deal with poverty and how we deal with taking, you know, what are what our responses to taking the land from these Native Americans, you know, hundreds of years ago, and you know, it's it's a very good. I mean, whether whether you look at how we deal with the environment now, how we deal with race, how we deal with anything, it's all like you said, we're all programmed to think a certain way, and it's very hard to get out of that box and start thinking differently to solve problems because the way we're thinking now isn't solving anything. Well, because yeah, there isn't a consensus. That's the thing. I mean, uh, you know, we, we keep having, having this pendulum swing throughout human history of evolving and devolving. And I think the larger question historically and looking forward is, is there a trend here? Is it that we can depend on? Are we evolving even very slowly, glacially, slowly over time towards goodness and towards progressive, progressing as a, you know, as a species? Are we going to tend to be more responsible? And I don't think so, you know, and I don't want to sound fatalistic or, or negative, but I, I was reading some uh, astrophysical science thing that was written up in uh, you know, like a scientific American or something and uh, I'm not probably even saying the right words but, but the, the gist of it is that that uh, universal uh, the age of the universe is just, you know whatever it is can be expected to be whatever it is you know, 13 trillion years <laughs> whatever it is uh, I don't remember the numbers but the point being that we're in about the two thirds age point where there's a certain amount of civilizations that have had to exist and will exist. And we're at the, uh, we're at about the two thirds point, meaning more civilizations have already existed and died than will pop up and die in the future. So, um, and the, the bottom line is all sentient, intelligent life will kill itself, <laughs> will uh, suffer oblivion because that's what we do. Because as any organism, we're, our, our prime function is to survive and propagate the species, to, t- to consume as much resources as possible, to succeed. And I use that word in quotes. Even if it means we get to the point where we inhabit, you know, a planet to the tune of eight billion 
units, you know, organisms, uh, with uncontrolled consumption and uncontrolled uh, propagation. Uh, you know, there's no there's no limit on how many humans we're continuing to make, which of course the number increases exponentially as your as your population increases. But you're living on a planet, and I say this in the film, in a in a uh, you know, a finite planet with finite resources. I mean, any simple-minded, you know, uneducated, meaning education as far as book education, but probably a wise person that's living in Papua New Guinea or in the Amazon or, you know, indigenous person or any, any person with basic human skills, you know, mind skills can look at those two things and, and deduce that this is not something that we can sustain. And I think what people are hoping for, at first I don't think people really care about, but the majority of people don't care about anything beyond their own um, lifespan and really care much about anything beyond their own immediate sphere of influence, their family and, and maybe their next door neighbors. And less and less so as you go down the street and less and less so as you go across the country. Uh, less and less so as you look around the world. In other words, if you average, if you ask an average uh, person in the Middletown, Iowa, uh, if they value the life of their neighbor, uh, you know, if they weight the value of the person's life when they compare their neighbor, let's say, um, to you know uh, a goat farmer and his family that live in a cave in uh, Kazakhstan. <laughs> Obviously, the answer is going to be what? Well, they're going to say yes, right? They're going to value the neighbor. Yeah, that puts a lot more weight on the neighbor's viability. Um, and so, I so it makes it a lot easier to, to demonize and go kill that goat herder in Kazakhstan and steal their resources and their labor and demonize them. Um, I mean, and for what? For resources, really. Because resources is at the base of everything. Every single thing, every human interaction, every, every uh, thing that we do to keep ourselves alive and to um, give ourselves things that we need or don't need is based on resources. And, and that's the way, it's, it's really very simple. You know, if people get any complex arguments when really, they don't have to be complex if you distill arguments down into their basic um, constituents, you know, components to fundamentally, foundationally, what are we really talking about here? We're talking about fear and greed, (laughs) which are are very powerful uh, drivers of human behavior. And they serve a purpose, and still serve a purpose, but serve a much more important purpose, a purpose of survival, you know, eons ago and now have been sort of weaponized and um, I think are uh, you know in other words when a billionaire has 15 homes and uh, you know a 300 million dollar yacht and is flying out to outer space just for a vacation while people are starving and you know there's drought and war and, and all the you know, just the miserable shit that most people's lives, you know, really have to exist. Um, 
that's morally wrong and sinful. Where the where the world's religions not most of them, you know, standing up for this and, and insisting on changing this. Why isn't the Catholic Church? Why isn't the Baptist Church? Why isn't the Protestant Church? Why isn't any religion really, except for maybe you know some forms of more progressive Christianity or Eastern religions, which are really more philosophies and religions or spiritualities. But but for the majority of, of people. Religions here are supposed to be based on morality. <laughs> why are they not? Why isn't there this? Isn't this their number one issue? I, I don't quite understand that, and I do understand that. It's almost like a rhetorical question because the answer is they're not religions; they're tribes that are looking out for their for their and theirs own best interests, economic best interests. Well. And, um, you know, in the film, you show that it's a very important moment in the documentary when you're standing behind a fence and you're looking at the development of a youth um, detention center. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, $43 million, I think, is what you said in the film and how much it costs to build this, you know, this detention center for kids. And across the street is a youth center that... Is basically got tumbleweeds going through the parking lot, closed. Why don't take those resources? Why don't take that money and develop a better, you know, youth center to give these kids that live on these reservations hope, right? Because when you see the kids in this film, you know, you, you, there's that one scene towards the end when you're talking to that mother whose daughter committed suicide, and you know, because kids don't have any hope, they, you know, they're, they're faced with alcoholism, they're faced with drug addiction. Many of them probably are abused, you know, because in that, in that, uh, you know, life of, you know, in that living, you know, that what they're doing in poverty, it does breed abuse, you know, whether mentally, physically, sexually, whatever. And, you know, you've got liquor stores making millions of dollars and you've got all these things surrounding it. You've got the uranium. You talked about taking resources. You know, you've got these companies digging for uranium right next to a reservation where people are getting sick as a result of it. And there's millions of dollars being made off of that, off of them pulling that resource out of the earth. And, then, you know, you're watching the film. And you're like, how can this be happening? And like you said, why aren't people, especially religious groups, demanding that it doesn't happen? Well, because um, people are complicated. And, and the history of humanity is the history of conquest and repatriation of, of resources and assets and humans, <laughs> which are considered resources at, at, at some point in time via slavery. Uh, and now it's not slavery, it's through incarceration, um, or it's through trade deals that, you know, world trade deals that, uh, that we enact with other nations so that we can lock in basically, but just don't have it on plantations in the South. We have it, you know, you're a worker in Mexico or the Philippines or Southeast Asia and China or Vietnam or, or Bangladesh. And, you know, you're sewing somebody's sweater for, you know, 15 cents a day and they're, horrible and humane conditions and you know <laughs> I mean it's just 
it's just codified into the DNA of the economy that we that is our God, because that really is our religion, is money, and we call the economy, um, and how it's distributed. But the fallacy is is that it's an it's a zero sum game, which it isn't. I mean, uh, you know, in other words, people on a certain spectrum of you know political theater have been led to believe that. If somebody that was a less fortunate life than ourselves gets a break and, and we change some rules and some regulations and, and have and create some policies to help lift people up, that that's going to detract from others, that others will have less. That this is a zero-sum game, that the pie is only so big, and for you to have more, I have to have less. That's not true. Um, but what should happen... <laughs> I think it's very simple logic is that uh, I call it the, the raise the floor and lower the ceiling theory. And that is, you know, um, multi-billionaires and trillionaires, which we're approaching the point where we're going to have trillionaires, by the way, uh, is obscene, unnecessary, and evil, is immoral and unethical and should not be allowed to exist. So there's the ceiling. You put a cap on it. How do you do that? through regulation and progressive taxation. It's proven to work. Tunisian economics. And then on the, on the other end of the spectrum, the floor you raise the floor and you increase um, all the elements of the social safety net that work. And how do we know what works? We'll look to places where they've enacted these kinds of policies and regimes. Um, Benelux countries, Scandinavian countries, uh, the country of Bhutan, uh, other Western industrialized countries have done better at us than, than, than we have with better outcomes, better health outcomes, better outcomes, and, and you know, and every metric you can you can think of. Um, uh, inequality is really at the root of a lot of these problems that we have. I mean, that's how you address it. I think it, most simply, you know, now how you put all that in place. I'm not suggesting how you do that, but I'm just saying, raise the floor, lower the ceiling. That's that's the tagline. <laughs> and you fill in the blanks. It's so you have, uh, you know, call it a welfare state. I said, what, what think about that word? What, what's welfare? I mean, that's. I mean, look it up. How has that word become demonized? <laughs> you know, uh, we're taking care of each other. You know, and of course, there's always listen. There's always going to be some glaring bad apple examples that you can hold up and go, well, look, you know, Reagan did that obviously with the, with the welfare queen thing, which is completely ridiculous, but, but it worked. And the, the thing is though, when the bad actors or rich white politicians and CEOs and corporatists, um, hedge fund operators, somehow that's okay. Because I think really in everybody's minds, not everybody, I should say, but, but in most people's minds, there's this kind of thought that's been taught to us that we're all just temporary, embarrassed millionaires waiting to happen. And we're going to be behind those golden gates someday, living in our freaking mansion in Malibu with a golden, you know, rhinestone-encrusted jet helicopter, <laughs> you know, whatever. I mean, we all think that, you know, to some extent. We all have this kind of almost unconscious belief that this system that we live under is 
is uh, it, that it's possible, uh, you know, to advance economically, and it isn't. Um, it isn't, you know, and, and, and that's what people need to look at, at, at data and facts uh, and statistics, because that proves that this country is not, it's pretty mobile. I mean, you're, you're born into wealth. Basically, it's lucky sperm. <laughs> you know, is what determines who's the one-tenth of one percent in the world. And I think we can do better than that. We need to do better than that so we can survive and be the exception to the historical rule of snuffing ourselves out due to human behavior being greedy and fearful, uh, um, destroying itself. One of the most polarizing individuals is Ted Nugent, and you had him in your film, and and you spoke to him about how it's kind of how he kind of almost contradicts himself in you know his music and what he represents to what he speaks about on his show, and he, we talk about his you know you or you talk about his activism in the documentary, and my question to you is: is it is it activism or is it brand building? Because to me, it's almost like he's building a brand and he's keeping that brand going because of the outrageous things that he sees and how what he says goes completely against what he says he's for. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot of brand building in there. You know, he's got his name all over guns and bows and arrows and clothing and deer hunting blinds and game calls and, you know, survival packages of food. And I don't know what else, you know, dive that far into it, but I assume he has all that going on. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a bit of that. I'm a huge part of that. I imagine, um, I, you know, but still he's very passionate about, and as these people with his ilk <laughs> are, uh, and frighteningly passionate in that, like I, I'm passionate about what I feel, you know, do the right thing. And people that I know that are like that are the same way. We're, we're, um, you know, and it bothers us. I mean, you know, here's the difference I think between the right and the left. One of the differences is that people on the right will benefit economically, financially from their self-professed belief systems. Um, in other words, if you're, if, you know, you work at Fox, you're getting paid. You know, you're putting, a, a, you're working government on the right. Um, you talk about a swamp. I mean, these guys are just, their hands are in everything, you know, and they're using uh, legislation to benefit themselves and it's just the good old boy network. One hand washes the other. I mean, it's arms deals. It's, you know, it's, it's just a bunch of uh, con men, you know, they're grifters, a majority of them. It's freaking, I mean, this Marjorie Taylor Greene, she's raising more money than any other congressman off all this QAnon bullshit. And, you know, <laughs> that's all it's about is, is money and power, which is, you know, they go hand in hand. And uh, it's, and then they're corrupted. I mean, that's, you know, uh, so uh, the people on the left generally, you can't say that, you know, an Amy Goodman or um, Chomsky or uh, uh, 
you know, think of a name a person, you know, who's out there doing the hard work and the fighting. You know, she's a uh, Chavez, uh, uh, you know, Martin Luther King, you know, uh, Fred Hampton. I mean, all the people that do the hard work, you know, anybody that works with the American Indian movement. I mean, these people putting their lives on the line, literally, um, and saying a lot of stuff that's very unpopular and getting a lot of, uh, suffering a lot of pain for a lot of personal psychological pain. Um, so I, I know I, I went, you know, through a period of uh, environmental activism where I was sort of aligned with, you know, the Earth Firsters and Monkey Wrench Gang, and that sort of uh, mentality, which is very militant. And I got to the point where watching the environmental degradation became so debilitating, I was getting depressed. And I had to step away from it because it was just it was just taking such a personal toll. And I see that in the eyes of some of the people that do this kind of work. You know, you don't, when you're fighting for the right thing, it, it, it's not, you're not doing it for a payday. And most of the times there isn't a payday there. <laughs> you know, I mean, what am I going to sell? And because I want to do the right thing, I wouldn't sell something based on that. You know, I mean, you can buy a Sierra Club calendar, I guess, but that helps you know them just pay lawyers to fight developers in court. But that's not what I'm talking about. You know, I'm talking about Sean Hannity making you know umpteen tens of millions of more you know dollars a year peddling lies self-aggrandizement and, and um, you know I mean it's just insane to me so I, I think uh, also I, I want to go back for a second you mentioned the, the, this uh, scene in the film uh, Shadow Nation where I was standing in Cayenta in front of the juvenile uh, detention center that Obama administration had just built it was like a 50 million dollar um, in the middle of this you know, right in the heart of Monument Valley. <clears throat> and it was um, really, it was like this just obscene scar, glaring, you know, just edifice of, you know, imposition, really, um, of the outsider's values on the only true American, you know. Uh, I mean, the only person that can really call themselves a real American in this country is <laughs> people that were here before the Europeans got here. So, uh, unless you want to talk about being philosophically pro-American, well, then then you have to define your terms. But um, you know, the true patriots are the people that are working from you know working at something and suffering for it. You know, um, because they know they're doing the right thing not because they're trying to get something out of it. They're trying to get something for all of us or for someone else, not for themselves personally. Um, um, but this, this juvenile detention center was just so obscene and hard to look at. And uh, I talked to a number of people in the community when we were staying there, and uh, a lot of people, uh, the men refused to work there. Just, you know, you get the, the temporary job, and they pay you really well, that's how they get you in, and you, you know, you do whatever you do, you know, some kind of construction work, and it's temporary, and it's gone. Now you built this thing to imprison your own children, <laughs> because, you know, in the time before 
we imposed our government system on tribal communities that were councils. Councils exist now in name only. They're not really, they don't do what councils used to do. Uh, Councils had people of wisdom um, that uh, people of power as uh, that were valued for their wisdom and knowledge and decision making as long as people respected them for that and if they failed them then they were ousted and um, by consensus no electoral college <laughs> direct democracy you know and our form of democracy you know comes from the Iroquois confederation and that's, that's where it's derived from uh, Iroquois confederation uh, was the seven nations um, with, uh, in the Northeast and New England, considered New England. Uh, I don't know the names of all the tribes, but the Iroquois were obviously one. Um, but uh, that was that 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 was the construct that we plagiarized and designed uh, our um, the, the way our country, you know, the ideals behind the way our country was founded. Um, some exception, of course, but like valuing people at uh, you know two thirds of the human being, that's kind of silly things, and, and white man privilege, of course, and no voting unless you're a land landowner or white land. Um, but uh, you know, the other idea that natives, uh, native people uh, historically have had as far as the way they view. Um, the earth is, is, is not the enemy. And, and that's because, you know, except for Native people have adopted, you know, um, certain forms of, of, of Christianity uh, and have adopted that worldview. Uh, historically, the Native view and the relationship to the earth is one of where they consider it, you know, in a much healthier way. It's more nature-based, and they also look at... Uh, Every action that we do has to be considered uh, against how that action or that behavior will affect seven generations beyond them. And to me, that's one of the, it should be right up there with the golden rule. I think if you just put that in the golden rule and inscribe that and replace in the planet, <laughs> and that's the overriding template for all laws and rules and behavior for all people at all times everywhere uh, life would improve for most of us um, you know just the golden rule do until it is very simple and uh, the seven generations rule those two things right there we could replace a litany you know a library of you know laws and bylaws and regulations and if everything flowed from that that would be a paradigm shift in, in, in how um, how we could do a lot better and also potentially save ourselves from ourselves and each other. Well, when you when you talk rather about... than build rather than build rather than build fifty million dollar well, uh, juvenile detention centers in the middle of Monument Valley. Well, right, you know, because you talk about the hope. In you know, for children in that documentary, and when there's poverty, I mean, I mean, we're not just talking like poverty that we see, you know, under a bridge somewhere or something like that. This is like this is the lowest form of poverty, and you know, the only 
industry, you know, for these people are liquor stores, right? I mean, there's no jobs to be had, you know, whatever little money they have, you know, there's one liquor store in that one scene that you talk about where they just go and they become alcoholics and they become, you know, whatever life they live after that. But then, you know, with the children, one of the things we constantly hear is about how we have to do things for children and, and, you know, make life better for, for the, for children. And whose children are they talking about? Because it only seems to me like it's a certain type of child in a certain area because not all children are, have the same hope that I had when I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. Right. You know, I mean, I I didn't have to think about those things that these kids have to think about, you know, I mean, and when you build that detention center in that town, you're basically telling them where they're going to go and where they're going to end up. You know, it's, it's just a, it's a really shitty way to position or have the government kind of like lead them down that path of self-destruction. Right. Policy is what leads us, as you said, you know, if you put something in place, that's where we'll go. Your eyes will, your mind will follow your eyes, you know, and, uh, you know, if you take that money and you invest it in what you want the world to be, that's what the world will be. And that's how people behave and that's how we'll perceive ourselves and we'll perceive the world. Um, there are always going to be tiny little exceptions, but the exceptions are not the rule. And that's where data comes in and that's where science comes in and that's where the truth lies. <laughs> we have tools to determine what the truth is. And uh, so you're right. Yeah. Tear that shit down. But then again, you know, have real tribal councils. Uh, again, make sovereign nations truly sovereign, meaning they can control their own resources. They control their own banking. They control their own investment. See, this is things that people um, don't understand on the surface, which is really vital to understanding why there is all this poverty in these places. I mean, look at South Africa, for instance. And apartheid ended because of world pressure. Um, people just said, listen, we're not going to South Africa. We're not going to, musicians aren't going to play there. Businesses aren't going to do business there. So the, the country got hamstring. They said, okay, we're going to change our policies on the surface. But guess what didn't change? you know, the banking didn't change in any fundamental way. And they made sure that that was the case. So the World Bank was in the IMF, all the banking interests and uh, financial interests going and make sure that the money still flows. So that's what you got to look at. It's always about the money. It's never about anything else, ever. <laughs> whether it's racism, whether it's environmentalism, Race, uh, you know, social and economic injustice, um, you know, incarceration, you name it. It's always just about where the money flows. So just look where the money goes and then reverse engineer that and it'll tell you exactly all you need to know. So what the problems are. Um, and, and having said that, you know, if you, let's say we erased all tribal lines, sense of color and and, and, and everybody was just on equal footing. We're still human beings. And that same behavior is still, we're still subject to that same bad behavior, self-destructive behavior, destruction of others. The big question I think is, and I think that the film asks, is are we capable of evolving collectively over a long arc of time towards a better place? Or are we going to be constrained by human nature to always be on that pendulum of 
advancing and then evolving and advancing and evolving and be uh, be completely ruled by a history of dominating others and acquisition and being irresponsible, <laughs> Just, you know, and short thinking as far as how we treat the earth and each other. I mean, that's the huge question right there, the most foundational question I think you can ask. Are we redeemable? Uh, whether you're Native American, whether you're white, whether you're black, whether you're brown, whatever, whatever tribe, whatever religion, whatever worldview you subscribe to, are we capable of doing the right thing? And I, I don't know the answer to that. And if we're not, can that change? And I don't know that either. So really, at the end, there isn't any point being made. Sure, we should do the right thing. Will we do the right thing? No. <laughs> because uh, I think you can look back to the, I think about this a lot. I mean, I was, like I said earlier, kind of raised in a somewhat hippie environment. And at least at the time when that was popular, and I ran in the circles a little bit, and was you know, very familiar with that. And that was my world. I and mean, there was a point in, uh, in the late 60s and very early 70s where things were very hopeful. You know, it ended the, the war in Vietnam, the civil rights, um, uh, reenacted civil rights under Lyndon Johnson, and, you know, uh, the hippie movement and all this came along, and, and it was very powerful. And, um, People were hopeful that uh, you know this was going to be the way the world was going to go you know, towards more equitability and um, you know environmental issues were going to be important and we were going to you know we were going to go for peace and not war and all these kinds of things for the fair economy and this and that um, everything wasn't going to be based on the dollar you know other things were going to be important too. Uh, and um, and that all went away. And that was a pretty crushing experience, and one of the most crushing experiences in my in lifespan. You know, having witnessed a lot of different things politically and, and uh, different political paradigms and cultural paradigms have come and gone. Um, so, you know, we're at a point here now where it's um, things have really swung to the right and. Uh, you know, but universally, and um, and a lot of our behaviors is uh, being manifest in, in very physical ways on this planet that are not easily fixed. So, um, it's uh, I think there will be. I think we're depending on a uh, in, in some circles, hoping for a cure. Uh, or a solution, sort of an easy collective solution to all these frightening prospects and problems that we have that we are by ourselves imposed. And a lot of people, I think we're honestly simple minded people, look to an autocratic authoritarian leader that says they can handle everything, don't worry, and make everything right. So you get a Donald Trump. Um, versus the alternative, which is doing the hard work. There are no simple binary answers. You know, all the truth lies in the gray areas, everything in the middle. You know, everything is, you know, it, it, it's, uh, life is not that simple. And it is just, it is just in black and white and good and evil. And, uh, 
And how do you understand that? Well, you understand that through being educated. Well, who gets educated? <laughs> Rich people's kids, uh, to a larger extent. You know, why do they get better education? Because the property taxes pay for their education and determine the quality of their education, the infrastructure of the teachers, the environment. Well, where does property money come from? Where the value of their homes? Well, if you live in Watts, which has, you know, uh, Green Greens or whatever it's called in Chicago or Watts or somewhere in, uh, you know, I don't know, Memphis, shitty part of Memphis or some other, you know, the thousand different places you could live in here in America and you're disenfranchised and, 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 and you live, you know, on poverty level or whatever, you're going to go to a shitty school. Um, and, uh, if you live, you know, in Brentwood or, you know, a million other places with, you know, really mobile communities with, with high property values, you're going to go to a great school and people migrate to these places, which also follows racial lines. But even more important than racial lines is, um, really, I think people just want to live with their own tribe. And uh, it come, this creates more polarization, um, which I think is what we fought against in the 60s and 70s. Um, and here we are. If you don't like where you live and you don't like the schools, you don't like what's being taught, guess what? You go to a charter school. <laughs> you take that public money and put it into a private school. And they made that happen. That's the boss accelerated that process quite a bit on the right. That's what they want. They want religious te- teaching in there because what does religion do? Religion supports at least the, the religion of the majority here in America, anyways. Supports the idea, many of the, I- the ideas that are interlocking and supportive of this very unfair, unjust economic system. You know, putting black and brown people in prisons uh, at a much higher rate than white people. People of color made Americans, first Americans. Uh, brown people, black people, uh, you know, scoring lower on every single metric in human, you know, in a human's life. Whether it's longevity, whether it's education, whether it's unemployment, whether it's diabetes, I mean, infant mortality, I mean, you name it. But uh, everything on the quality of life and longevity spectrum and education spectrum is lower for everyone else but, you know, well-to-do white people. Who has who's uh, controlling the levers of the power? So that's really what it's all about. And again, I think it gets back to that question. I don't mean to ramp on here, but you got me going. So uh, it's a question of the argument of a zero-sum game, meaning it's a limited. The size of the pie is limited. There's almost so much for, so much to go around, and that's just the lie that's being sold. That that the haves have to give up to give to the have-nots. That's the selling point. If we open up our borders so to uh, you know allow brown people from Guatemala, El Salvador, to come here so they can feed their families and do the jobs that none of us want to do or will do, or pay that none of us can you know live off of. It's, a, it's not even a living wage. Why won't we agree to do that? <laughs> Um, even though that's wrong in and of itself, you know, 
why are our prisons full of brown and black people? Because we've constructed laws to, to um, you know, rule of law, a country with the rule of law that forces us to have, you know, you know, prisons full of people of color. Uh, but at the same time, this rule of law won't, we won't enact it to support almost 500 treaties that the white power structure has broken with first Americans. These are treaties, these are contracts, but yet we won't refuse to honor them. It's not convenient for us. So there's all these contradictions in, in, in all these different places that are, um, you know, very evident, but will be rationalized away and ignored, of course. And, um, it's infuriating, quite honestly. Well, it's also based on education, too. And if you're not teaching the children of this country, real history or, or, or history that, you know, you, you, for whatever reason, school districts won't teach, you don't learn from it, right? And you don't understand why certain groups feel a certain way, are categorized a certain way. Um, if you don't know about the Trail of Tears, for instance, you know, that's not taught in your school. When you hear Native American, you know, communities, you know, you know, want more or need more in terms of helping their their dire situation, you're not going to be empathetic to it because you don't know the history. You don't know, you know, what happened to these people and how they were treated because it's just not taught. Yeah, when you, when you understand the basic premise of what happened, and I know this is what's happened throughout history, of course, with all human beings, is they're human beings appropriating other people's lands and resources. But in our specific example, I mean, citing that, by the way, is an argument that some people will use to rationalize it and even condone it, that kind of behavior. But that's not right. That's like catching your kids stealing and say, well, and all these other kids stole or did all these other bad things. This other guy murdered somebody, so I murdered somebody. Well, it doesn't make it right. We're trying to get to the point where we don't do that as much, right? Isn't that the point? So, uh, yeah, it's just, um, that's my train of thought. Sorry. Go ahead. No, it's just, you know, we talk about what's taught in schools, you know. I mean, the, the big thing right now is the critical race theory and the big controversy over that, you know. And and now, you know, but, but if you look at school districts in the state of Texas, you know, they stopped teaching, you know, the theory of evolution, or, you know, and they, st- and they started telling people that uh, dinosaurs were in the Bible. You know, I still, I still remember well, having the a... School, yeah, the school board of education is, is uh, really very powerful because they they're so Texas is so huge that any books that they approve are the, the curriculum that gets disseminated through much of the rest of the country. So they're, they have this outward, uh, you know, this oversized amount of uh, influence on what gets taught. And of course, these are very right wing Bible belt, you know, regulators, people that make these decisions in te- the Texas uh, education board. And, so right there, you have a problem, and then there's this was it the sixteen nineteen thing that was 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 being taught that got fought against, and then of course now there's the critical race theory that they've been having a problem with, and it's just been uh, uh, outlawed or regulated in I think half the states in the country, um, all right wing states, of course. Um, 
yeah, it's uh, it's insane. I mean, if you don't, you know, I uh, another thing we did in the film is we, we tried to um, get uh, one particular book out uh, into schools and some of the Western reservations were visited to the educators. And that was Howard Zinn's Young People's History of the United States. And um, the most, you know, there's no such thing as a truly objective writing of history. Of course, everything, everybody has biases and unconscious biases and so forth. And, but the closest thing I have found to being what I could consider an objective is truthful history. Um, and, uh, and we made attempts to, you know, distribute this to uh, teachers that had the uh, ability to uh, put them in schools. But uh, we found that, that um, a lot of the educators are restricted into what they can teach depending on where they were. South Dakota, for instance, in my Pioneer Reservation, is a very conservative, uh, Republican uh, power structure there. And uh, although that isn't the case on the reservations, the reservations are minority and they don't have any political clout at all because they're poor. So, um, uh, you know, we found a lot of inability on the educators' part to even agree to disseminate this information as much as they wanted to because it was not allowed. Um, so wait a minute. So on a reservation, <laughs> you're not you're not legally allowed to tell your own truthful history of how this reservation came about and who your people are, and you can't talk about the Carlisle schools, and you can't talk about the Tulsa race riots, and you can't talk about you know you have to give this quote unquote balanced uh, uh, version of uh, slavery. And what the war was about? I mean, are you freaking kidding me? And everything that happened a hundred years later, the Jim Crow and and Reformation and all these things, I just absolutely insane. Where I've been read in some some places that uh, in some uh, text that I uh, school curriculum I was shown uh, how the uh, Carlisle schools and other Indian boarding schools were portrayed as being beneficial, you know, and saying, well, you know, although there were some negative things and some families were torn apart and you know, they had to cut their hair and couldn't speak their language uh, or they were, they wouldn't even say they couldn't speak their language. They said they were uh, dissuaded from speaking their language, and, you know, which isn't true. Uh, we were finding out there's a lot of children murdered in these schools and there's mass graves that they're now discovering with, um, you know, uh, underground radar kind of devices. I'm not sure what they're called, but I actually visited one in Minnesota, I believe it was, and uh, uh, we were doing a show uh, out there, and uh, some of the people from the tribe invited me to this uh, closed-down uh, Indian Indian technical school, I think it was called. It was a boarding school, like Carlisle schools, and they showed me the mass graves. I mean, they weren't, uh, they weren't exposed, I mean, but they have, radar had revealed that there was something under there, and then they found hundreds of bodies, children. Now, recently, this has just come up in the news, there was a couple more that have just been recently uh, discovered. One was in Canada, I believe, recently, I you read about that. Yeah, I did. Well, these are brutal, brutal places, and, you know, not just here, in Canada and Australia and you know, I mean, look what's happening in China with the Uyghurs, the, 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 you know, the Muslims, 
in the eastern that eastern Chinese province uh, where they're being re-educated <laughs> and tortured and killed and imprisoned by the millions. But yet we look the other way because we need our Walmart. Well, when you look at the the way you know schools are you know curriculum is taught, and you know how it's kind of selective memory, quote unquote, you know, like it's and it's taught in a way that kind of defines patriotism, right? And and it kind of goes along with how people define, you know, God forbid if there's something in a textbook that is critical about the United States and how the United States went about something and handled something. And it always gets the, it gets defined as unpatriotic if if you tell the truth, you know if you if you tell talk about things that maybe we're not proud of, you know when you think of your own personal history throughout life, there are moments that you're not proud of, but that's still part of your history. That doesn't mean that you're a bad person or a horrible person. It just means that you've got a couple scars, you've got a couple, you've got some things that you didn't do so good at, you know. And it just when you when you find that people define patriotism, you know, like they don't really know what patriotism is, is what I gather from when they start to talk about that stuff. Well, again, it's not a binary thing. There shouldn't be. And, and people that have a certain kind of brain wiring look at the whole their whole existence as being this simple binary good versus evil. And with George Bush was kind of his whole philosophy is built on, you know, the evildoers. It isn't that way. That's not really what life is about. So, you know, the, <laughs> it's, you know, and Tom Morello, I think, expressed it very succinctly in the, in the film at the end. He really wrapped things up when he said, listen, it's, 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 uh, there's, there's two Americas. There's the America that we're very proud of, the ideals, the things that have worked. You know, there's very positive, wonderful things about it. You know, it's an experiment in democracy, and it's still an experiment, and it's morphing, and it's whatever we're going to make it. So it's a, work, it's a work in progress. On the other side of the coin, there's a lot of problems, and there's a lot of bad things that have occurred, and there's been a lot of bad behavior, and continues to be. And true patriots understand that. So appreciate what's good and fix what's bad, or work to fix what's bad. It's that simple. But just don't say, okay, I got to like everything because it's got a flag on it. I mean, what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> it just means you're being a moron and sticking your head in the sand and not facing reality, you know. Um, unless you like those things that most of us consider negative things, unless you adhere to racism and inequality and want brown and black people filling our prisons and the country that houses the most people and prisons the most people, both per capita and whole numbers in the entire history of the universe. If you think that's a good thing, then okay, then say what you mean and say that that's what you're about and that's what you stand for. But don't pretend to call it patriotism. I mean, (laughs) you don't get to do that. It's it's almost like, you know, I was saying my wife this the other day and we're driving around, you know, there's that period of Trumpism where, you know, a lot of terrible things were happening and all this, you know, people driving around in these, these, you know, trucks who had American flags and the Gasden flag and the Trump flag in their pickup trucks, you know, or outside their house. And it was equating the American flag with these other things and that's not necessarily that great, you know, and healthy for us. And um, so it, be, 
it's shifted now a little bit, you know, to where, yeah, you know what? I'd fly an American flag, you know, because we've got a sane person and a sane, uh, you know, somewhat sane government, you know, things have gotten better and we're kind of, you know, doing things that are, you know, the right way now again, and this is healthier and so I feel okay about this. But we got to the point where it's almost like they were appropriating, the people on the right were appropriating the symbol of the country to espouse their ideas. It was just really bothersome. Uh, and you go in native country, and I think you see this in the film and one of the trailers that I'm in, um, in a couple other places, is that you see, uh, which something I had never really seen before is the upside down American flag. And, you know, of course, some people on the right will scream and holler, oh, that's, you know, whatever that horrible thing to do. I go, no, what it means is it's a country in distress. And not the way people in, you know, the, the uh, January 6th insurrection group think of the country being in distress, which is self-imposed distress. But in the sense of native reservations, they have been under duress and distress since their inception, <laughs> since we came to these shores, you know, 400 fucking years of this. You know, try living with that kind of stress, you know, where it's real, you know, I mean, and it's real on every level of your existence. Um, uh, so what I gather from that in talking to people in reservations is, is that they're living in some kind of oppression, constant oppression, generationally, that they're born into and carry with them that weight, which is why they have the outcomes they have, tremendous alcoholism and diabetes, and they diet at an early age, and they've despondent, depressed lives, and, and the suicide rate is off the charts. <laughs> um, Interfamily violence, and just, ugh, just horrid, you know, because they have, like you said, they have, they, they are proud of some things, and these people are the first people to sign up to go to war to fight for their conquerors ideals. You know, I just, there's a, some crazy philosophical conundrum there that I haven't figured out yet, but I think, I think they're warriors, you know, and they want to be attached to something and it is their land, you know, it's been appropriated, but it's still their land. So, uh, but the upside down, this part of that is, is that it's a land in distress in many ways. It's not working for them. So, um, no, I just uh, I look forward to having more sanity in the dialogue and and leading to you know obvious fixes you know that benefit like I like to say most of the people most of the time that should be the litmus test for any policy tax breaks for the rich no <laughs> progressive taxation so that we can have lower the you know uh, raise the floor and lower the ceiling benefits most of the people most of the time. And those are the kind of granular, kind of just boring, uh, kind of, you know, policy things, wonky things that, that really matter. You know, they're not super exciting emotionally, but they're really, you know, I talk to my wife about this sometimes, it's like, you know, the practical policies that we put into place, uh, are things that can change people's lives and, and uh, determine the direction of uh, this country and, and the world and, 
in people's individual lives um, in a way that matters to people, you know. Um, so, you know, if I, I was poor at one point in my life, in my early 20s, late teens, early 20s. And um, I know that I'll never forget that feeling, you know, of hopelessness and, and, and having really no way to do anything. You could work as hard as you could be willing to work as hard as you want and dig, dig a hole to China with a shovel. Doesn't mean anything. You know, I mean, uh, uh, I, I know that feeling of what lack of education, lack of opportunity feels like. It's a prison. It's, there's just no way out of it. And it's there by design. You know, it's a thin blue line or redlining, or, you know, this policy, that policy, or the way the economy's built. You're not getting into school. You're not going to get a job. You're not going to, you, you, know, I, I, you know, I remember periods in my life where I'd just be, not just paycheck to paycheck, but, uh, and I've been homeless. And I've been, you know, lived in my car and lived with friends and lived on the street and lived in the back of vacant houses and lived on the side of railroad tracks and hot freight trains and hitchhiking and been stuck in jail and all these kinds of things. It was an adventurous point in my life, but I was also, I couldn't do, I, I was really, if it wasn't for music, just, which was very unexpected, uh, uh, that I had a, a career in music. I had no idea that I was going to do anything like that. I probably I had no idea where my life would have led me, but it certainly wasn't any help out there for me. And I was very, I was willing and did work very, very hard. But it didn't matter how hard you worked. Upward mobility isn't based on hard work. <laughs> based on, you know, lucky genes, lucky sperm. And uh, that's about it. And, uh, you know, I'd get to the point where if I would be in the wrong place at the wrong time and get arrested or, or get a ticket or, uh, you know, that would just crush my life. You know, I had no way to then make any money and we couldn't find a job, you know, and the job I had was just shit, you know, for working for uh, a wage that was really not a survival wage. So I'd work 70 hours a week when I had a job, but still could barely survive. So I'd be one speeding ticket away or one car repair away from being out on the street. And I really, I mean, points in my life, I was hungry, you know, I didn't have food. I didn't have a way to get food and just walk the streets looking for work. Couldn't find work because I had no education, didn't really have any skills, didn't have a skill set. So I found jobs, you know, and factory jobs and restaurant jobs and manual labor jobs. And I was very proud of my jobs when I had a job. I worked really, really hard. But there was no way I was going to climb any ladder. Because <laughs> I was an education, ninth grade education. I wasn't going to get anywhere. Um, and I was always, man, you don't have any safety net out here. So, you know, all you need is just one bad break. Like I said, that speeding ticket or running with the cops or, you know, anything. Uh, one one hit, you know, get laid off. I you know, work at a factory and work at an aquarium factory. Oh, we're laying everybody off, laid everybody off. Well, what am I going to do? You know, you get evicted from your apartment. You got little kids. You don't have any way to put gas in your vehicle. You don't have any. Now you're riding a bike to work. Oh, you don't have a job. Now you don't eat. Now you're back living with your in-laws. 
now we, you know, puts pressure on your marriage. Now you get a divorce. Now we're, now you're on the street. So I mean, you know, I know what that feels like, and um, and it's baked into the system. That's how the system is designed for billionaires to exist. We have to have a supportive pyramid of this underlying underclass. We have to. Unemployment has to exist. Why? Why are we? Why can't we even ask the question? Why does unemployment have to exist? Isn't arguable that we could have a system where we have 100 percent employment? Well, the reason we can't ask the rhetorical question is because 100 percent employment would give more power to labor. And what would that mean? That means that we could bargain for a universal wage that that would be not a poverty wage, you know, like we're talking about right now, $15 an hour. The fact that we can't get that through is insane, where the average minimum wage has stayed at $7.25 an hour for how many decades? When, you know, uh, one-tenth of 1% wealth has increased, you know, thousandfold. So um, that's obscene, that's immoral, and I think that's the base the basis for a huge amount of our problems, if not all of them, uh, running the gamut from environmental issues, climate change, uh, incarceration, um, you know, health outcomes, uh, the fact that we don't have universal health care, uh, single-payer health care like we have in all other Western industrialized countries. We, we uh, adhere to one of the four, four forms of universal health care that, that are out there, we don't have that in the United States. And we have worse health incomes because of it. Um, you know, I know this isn't what people want to hear their rock stars talk about. <laughs> well, that's a, first, yeah. I mean, I mean, that's another thing too, right? I mean, how many times have someone like yourself, an athlete, you know, a musician, an actor, started talking about things? And, and not just people that are interested in getting you know, getting a, a trend going on Twitter, trending on Twitter, trending on social media, people that actually walk the walk and do what they say they're doing. And, you know, we hear people say, shut up and dribble, shut up and play your guitar, right. shut up and act. These are the same people that are against cancel culture and what they're actually doing by, by saying these things to people like yourself is a, a pre, preemptive cancel. Like, you know, just because you play music for a living or just because you shoot a, a basketball or hit a baseball or, you know, act on screen, you're not entitled to have an opinion. You're not allowed to speak about what your beliefs are, which is, you know, again. You know, I think we're not only entitled, we have an obligation. All I agree. And, and that needs to just be insisted upon. So fuck these people that say you don't you have a right to have a voice. I mean, no, I actually have an obligation to give a shit. And because I'm not pretending to give a shit and I don't have a, I'm not making money off giving, you know, pretending to give a shit like a Fox news pundit who can, you know, was, I mean, look at the, for instance, look at this congressman in Arizona who's helping holding up uh, the progressive and liberal agenda in, in Washington and getting things done like voting laws so that everybody can vote. <laughs> the basis of our democracy, uh, cinema. So she was a Green Party. She, 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 she was, uh, you know, a Green Party politician. And now look at her. 
you know, so what happened? Well, you know, I, I firmly believe it's just money because there's no money in doing the right thing a lot of the time, you know, and working for the benefit of other people. There's no, there's no payoff for that, you know. Um, and uh, I think that's a driver for a lot of people. And you have to sometimes look inwardly, and I've done that, and, and thought about myself, and I go, well, how much of a hypocrite am I? Massive, massive hypocrite. I mean, I drive, you know, the wrong vehicles, and I live in the wrong house, and I, you know, and even a, a more nothing-bull situation, I think it is, is um, uh, I, like I have an endorsement with USP guitars for like 36, 37 years. I have my own guitar line, my own guitar models. And um, 80% of those are LTDs, and those are were being made in places like Indonesia and Taiwan. And where does this wood come from? Well, not historically, not from places that, uh, you know, are forestly, you know, green forest approved environmentally correct sourcing, wood sourcing. So, so so I thought to myself, okay, well, if if it came down to it, would I be willing to forego my royalties for these guitars to do the right thing? And those are the kind of questions you have to ask yourself. Personally, what I did was I had a discussion with ESP and, and they did change their policy or sourcing policies where there were problems. To now the stuff comes from places that are most, more environmentally sustainable. Um, not 100% because of me, but I'm trying to say that I did that. But, but we did have that conversation that did happen. Does that just make me sleep better? Um, it hasn't really changed anything. And would I be willing to walk away from the money if it came to that? And would that change anything? So those are kind of hard questions you have to ask yourself. I think. Are you willing to change your lifestyle um, to avoid the hypocrisy of your words versus your deeds? And then how far do you take it? And then does it really change anything? So I don't know. Those are tough questions you, know, you have to ask yourself. Because if I ask myself those questions and kept going down that rabbit hole, where do you end up? Where would I end up? Living in a cave, playing an unelectrified guitar, um, not flying in an airplane, um, on and on and on. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I'm a product of human existence. You know, uh, uh, it's very hard to to not be that. You know, I mean, and, and, and conduct yourself in any meaningful way in the modern world. So, yeah. I don't know if I'm going to go live on Golden Thoreau's Pond or something. I haven't thought about it. But. And I think I think the answer is, um, I hate to use this word balance, but because that's like almost saying, well, split the difference between right and wrong. <laughs> the, the, the halfway point between right and wrong is still wrong. Right? So... Uh, yeah, it's a tough personal question, but at least we actually need to ask those questions and we can, you know, just bend the course of human behavior a little bit universally. Um, I think that would be a huge undertaking and a huge accomplishment. You know, you talk about you know, walking the, the you, you talk about walking the walk 
you were part of the Dakota Access Pipeline protests in the you know in in North Dakota, and you were there. You were on the front lines. You were there when they were firing the water cannons on the protesters. And that was a it's a very polarizing issue in this country. There's one side that believes that you know it hurts the environment, which I fall under that category, and the other side believes that it creates thousands of jobs, which it actually doesn't. And they also think that it blames for the high prices in gas, which it really doesn't. Um, what was your experience there? You know, what? Why did you feel compelled to go and be a part of that protest? Well, uh, you know, I it stood for everything in my, you know, every fiber of my being resonated with the ideas that were behind us. And I was a little too young to be involved in the protests of civil rights and against the war, even though I was up for draft and just missed out on getting drafted. Um, but, you know, wasn't of age to like be going and demonstrating in Washington or anything. So, you know, and since the ensuing years, I've gotten older and, and followed all this stuff and tried to be involved. Um, it just felt like it was an event that just all things just sort of came together and went, this is something I need to be involved in. And just out of my, you know, passionate belief in like everything that, that's going on here is on the line. You know, this is a moment. So, um you know, between my care and, and, and work for Native American issues and indigenous issues to environmental issues, it all sort of kind of uh, came together this one instance. And so my wife and I decided to, to get involved and took, take, take some time out and go up there. Um, and it was horrifying and sad and beautiful at the same time. And the, the beauty part of it is, is being in the midst of 10,000 people coming together in almost a Woodstock kind of way to do something very unselfish and put themselves in harm's way to help each other and to help all of us and to you know fight for the earth. And and, uh, and then to, it was just absolutely stunningly, tear-jerkingly beautiful sort of redeemed all my you know my worldview throughout my life I'm like this is why I believe what I believe this is what I do what I do because I, I love this you know it just validated all that for me that there were enough of the other people in this world that think this way and care unselfishly about each other and others you know, and the earth so it, it was insanely inspiring uh and see people put themselves in harm's way like this. It's just, and it was very, you know, it was difficult. I mean, my wife worked in the medical tents where they were actually here, and I worked making stoves that we had 45 gallon, 55 gallon drums that we're welding and attaching feet to and attaching stove pipes to and trying to put those out in all the different tents and structures. Uh, you know, this huge community had, had just you know, appeared out of nowhere around an idea. And, and that was just stunning, and I loved it. Um, and it was a fleeting moment, but I mean, the idea still exists as people are still here. The idea that drives it is still here, is that we're, we need to be able to put ourselves in jeopardy for 
um, survival, you know, survival in the right way. Um, so, uh, and these are all kind of ideas that really derive from indigenous ideas that have lasted, outlasted any of, you know, the West's ideas by centuries, you know, or, or millennia. So, um, just to see all these things in action, you know, people in drum circles, marching, praying, and, and using um, you know, nonviolent confrontation, you know, MLK, back to Gandhi, and, and others have used and, and advocated for. Um, just really, just seeing all these things on the ground is really stunning. Uh, and then uh, on the other side is to see the forces that we were aligned against or we're aligned against us. And just the first thing that come to mind is that why are these forces here and what are they defending? <laughs> uh, I mean, and, and, and these are, are their neighbors. So why are we being confronted like this with this kind of just diabolical force? Uh, it was just insane. What was the, uh, I mean, the pictures were frightening. I mean, the reality of being there was scary. I mean, uh, I remember there's this huge, uh, just pallets with giant boxes full of books, discarded books, libraries they donated that were in bookstores that, uh, and rolls of duct tape. And what you're instructed to do, because we had training classes in, in how to, how to, um, conduct ourselves and one of the things was you're going to be shot with rubber bullets and uh, and other things so you need body armor body armor was duct tape these books to your body <laughs> you know everybody had masks everybody had earplugs because of a sonic weapon being displayed um, being bombarded with these uh, microwaves and, and these uh, horns that are on these giant huge armored military vehicles that, that generated the sonic uh, just, I don't know what you would call them, 140 decibels of just, you know, sound weaponry. It's insane. And you have all these concrete barriers and concertina and razor wire and these police that look like something right out of Star Wars, you know, future space military guy. I mean, they were just, there was no human being left there to look at. They were just, and that's part of it too. They just, had so much armature on, but they weren't, there wasn't any, there wasn't humanity left there. No, you know, individually identifying feature. They were just these robots, emotionless robots. And it was just fucking frightening and insane. And then they had jamming all of our cell phone and communications with these airplanes that would be overhead 24-7 during the day and drones everywhere. There's no way to get the information out, get pictures out and video out. There was this one hill that we would go to that we could get some self-service. We were being watched and cataloged and uh, and surveyed and, and uh, it was just freaking insane to me. And I actually had a one-on-one -on -one with some of the, the, the police at one point ran into a group of them and I just, you know, and they were of the opinion, some of them, that there's, there's just these, there's some of these bad actors and they were really emotional about it. Some of these guys, yeah, you think they're all a bunch of hippies, peacemakes, but now, you know, there's these, and, and I think what they're referring to and the people that I saw there, some of these younger Native men that were just, you know, fuck this, 
you know, it's okay for these guys to bring out their tanks and weapons of war and all this crazy shit that they're throwing at us. But we go out with a fucking gas mask and, and a couple of little things, and all of a sudden we're terrorists. <laughs> Wait a minute, we're the terrorists? <laughs> Are you sure about that? It was just crazy the way people think. I, I just, it's just so illogical. I also, no, I I often think too that when people are for something like a pipeline to be built through Native American land or even just land in general in the United States, I I always find myself thinking, have they seen this beautiful country? You know, my son and I, we do a lot of trips as a father and son. You know, we go to, you know, national parks. We've been to Yellowstone. We've been all the parks in Utah and Arizona, New Mexico, up all the way up in, you know, up in Maine and in the New England area as well. And I've often felt that if people saw the beauty in Bears Air or, you know, Moab or, you know, Yellowstone, they would be more inclined to preserve this, this land and protect this land, you know, from greed and from corporations because it is, I mean, when we do go to war and we do these things, we fight for our country, this is one of the things that we're fighting for. This is what is part of that. And when we just kind of discard it or we have a willingness to discard it as just, well, we need to, we need to dig for oil, you know, or we need to, you know, whatever we need to do for resources, it just, it, it cheapens the country. It cheapens our land in that it's, it's, it's not worth fighting for anymore. Yeah, you go, you you go, you drive through the West. You, you 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 know, you're talking about some of the crown jewels and national parks. You drive through the West, just drive through, you know, the the, the back roads and the byways and the and, and the West. There's huge, large expanses of just maybe it's not you know Yellowstone, it's not the Grand Canyon, but it's still wide open, beautiful, natural country. At least it was. See what fracking has done to this country. You know, fly over and see what these wells look like. You would not, I mean, you maybe have seen it, but it's absolutely, it's, it's like this <laughs> dystopian wasteland. Every single acre, square mile is just a puzzle of dirt roads, service roads, flaring gas, uh, wells with all the infrastructures built on them. It's absolutely insane. You know, and and you know, and the pipelines are there to replace other means of transporting dirty crude. You know, the bitumen crude from the Alberta tar sands. It's not even our country. You know, I mean, it's coming from the Bakken or the Permian Basin. At least it's coming out. You know, from Texas, from West Texas, East New Mexico, Southeast New Mexico, or North Dakota, the Bakken fields, which are getting played out because the price has gone, you know, gas has gone down, but. Um, these are just boom and bust economies. Pipelines boom and bust. I mean, you supply a job to lay a pipeline, the job goes away, and then what happens? You replaced all the truckers and all the railroad workers. So, from a job standpoint, no, you're you're replacing a permanent job with a temporary job. Why would you do that? Because banks are the investors. Who makes money when these pipelines go in? All the levels of the production of uh, petroleum you know, of oil and gas. And the owners of those uh, interests 
for the ones that make money, the shareholders, the stockholders, <laughs> the people that own the company. Those, those are the ones that all the money goes right to the top. They'll, you know, uh, and and the banks and investment look again. Look at where the money goes, and, and what kind of oil is this? This is this is um, bitumen infused. This is the dirtiest shale oil that you that exists on the planet. Meaning it's energy negative. It requires more energy to mine it and process, and transport it, and distill it than it does to burn it. <laughs> than the benefits you get from burning it. And then, of course, it's so freaking carbon intensive. This this bitumen uh, uh, shale oil that when it burns, it's it's it releases it does much more damage to the atmosphere than say Saudi oil. It's a higher grade oil. I mean, it's all bad, but so you're eliminating jobs in the long term, and you're putting way more pressure on the environment. We're at 450 parts per million in the atmosphere in this planet, um, and that just happened in the last hundred years since the Industrial Revolution. We should be at below 350 just to survive, and all this is accelerated at uh, an incredible pace. Uh, and so in the last couple of decades. So, you know, guys trying to slam through a few more pipelines so that they can, you know, flow the dirtiest oil in the world, at, you know, a few hundred thousand gallons a day so that they don't have to truck it and you can get to the processing plants and the refineries quicker and get onto the world markets and not even being used in the United States. This stuff is being sold to Japan and China and, and other parts of Europe and other parts of the world to the highest bidder. Basically, you know, it's a globalized economy. I mean, it's not going to the United States. But it doesn't matter at this point where it goes, because it all gets burned, and we all breathe the same air and live in the same atmosphere. <laughs> and climate change affects everybody. There's nowhere to hide anymore. Where are you going to hide? Where are your children going to hide? Again, back to seven generations, where are your children's 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 going to hide? Are they going to have, have a habitable earth? And don't expect technology to solve the problem. You know, sometimes you have to actually alter your behavior, and that's what people don't want to do because they're lazy and um, they don't want to give up anything. I potentially for the future. I remember watching. I was watching Fox News. This is probably four or five years ago, and it was on like a Saturday or Sunday afternoon, and they were talking about climate change and they were talking about sea levels rising. And one of the hosts said, well, by the time it's really going to affect us, we'll probably have technology that will alleviate the problem. Right. And I'm like, like I'm like, that, that's a, that's a risky bet to take. Right. I mean, <laughs> that's, I mean, you're putting all your eggs in technology will save us. Um, I don't know if I want to, you know, go along with that. I don't know if I'm on that team that just, you know, keep my fingers crossed and roll that dice because it's getting worse and worse each year, and it's almost to the point where technology is not going to be able to keep up. And, you know, the people that benefit are the ultra-rich, obviously, and they're insulated. Their, uh, their money insulates them from the reality that they're creating for the rest of us who will have to deal, you know, with the worst outcomes. Um, health issues, being able to eat, being able to have water, clean water, any water, <laughs> uh, you know, 
fires, rising sea levels. People who are living on their, you know, mega yachts don't care about that shit. They're completely insulated. They have no, they're, they're, they'll go to a, you know, found out in that pandemic, where did, where did a lot of these rich people go? They went to New Zealand or they went to live on their mega yachts or they went, you know, they went up to, I personally know people with money that bailed out and went up to, you know, either the islands, pick an island where there's sort of, you know, it wasn't really COVID happening and they can live like in paradise on the beach and till it's all, all, all this blows over. Most of us can't afford to do that. Um, or, um, say Jackson hole. I know a few people personally that are very well off that that's what they do. Well, we'll go to a place that's full of rich white people like us and CEOs and ex politicians and, you know, uh, Dick Cheney's of the world. And, you know, President of Halliburton or this company or that company, you know, and, you know, average house is $15 million and you live in the shadow of the Tetons with Buffalo roaming in your front yard and you're surrounded by other incredibly rich white people, um, all spaced out and COVID free. You know, I mean, kind of an, an analog for what we might be facing in the future on a much greater scale. That these people feel insulated from the effects of what they are forcing on the rest of us due to their greed. Pipelines exacerbate that. They do. And, you know, in, in closing here, is, is there anything, you know, that you're doing currently, you know, whether a follow-up to the documentary, whether, you know, trying to get people more involved that you can speak about and that you can tell people about? Well, I, I would, I mean, am I doing anything actively right at the moment? No. What I have been thinking about is, is think I don't know if I'm going to do it, but I'm thinking about writing something. Um, I'm just not sure. You know, I mean, people, uh, you know, in my line of business, usually write books about their rock star careers and all the what happened to them in the '80s with coke and strippers and their band and other silly shit and I, I don't want anything to do with that I'm not interested in that but nobody wants that's all anybody wants to read I'll make it uh, 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 it's interesting because when I put up the you know the Shadow Nation film uh, it took me about two years to get it out there and uh, it's very 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 difficult I could not find any way to do it I couldn't find any way other than just putting it out myself to get any kind of distribution or anything. So, um, obviously we're able to in a limited way, but um, what I found was that, and I, I heard this almost universally across the board when I would talk to people at meetings and stuff, and, and you know, they all said about the same thing, that they had, this had been just a music thing. If you'd done this just about your musical career or, you know, that kind of stuff, uh, this would have been a no-brainer. But nobody wants to hear, you know, what people think is a rich, white rock star, ex-rock star. 
cry about the environment or the plight of Native Americans. Nobody wants to hear it. I mean, it's a tiny subset of people, maybe, but it's not something we can bank on. And uh, I get that. So, you know, people don't want to hear things that make them uncomfortable. It's not, it's not and pay money for it. Um, so, um, the prospect of writing a book uh, I like, but I want to do it in the right way, and I don't have to be about something meaningful or truthful and not disingenuine and not just grabbing a dollar. You know? I don't mind grabbing a dollar when it has something to do with my actual work and my, my profession, but when it comes to something like that, you know, I think it's more important to just really be very self-revealing and honest. And uh, that's the point of it. And I don't know if there's a market for that. So that's the problem I'm having with that. I don't know. After my experience with the film, which was eight years of my life and very wonderful experience on one hand, but also very painful. Um, uh, I don't know if I want to put myself or anyone else through that again, but I'm entertaining the idea of maybe writing something. I'm not sure what it is. And uh, as far as new music coming out in 2021, I know you're always involved in projects and always doing things. What can your fans expect from you this year? Uh, the next thing up is a, a solo record, instrumental record that I recorded last year um, called Seamless. And uh, it's going to be out this summer. Um, let's see, I'm going to be working on a Sweet Lynch record in the fall, which will be coming out following year and uh, the third thing well actually we have a few more things other than that but that, we're looking at KXM4 probably working on that uh, uh, this winter and then I'll also in 2022 and um, without giving away anything there's some pretty serious talk about a, a, doing a document record but I that's, again don't quote me like <laughs> we're definitely doing but that we've gotten closer than we ever have and, and potentially pulling that together. So people might be doing that kind of a reunion dock and record here if everything, uh, you know, last few puzzle pieces fall into place. So take that with a huge grain of salt. Well, my fingers are crossed for that. You know, I always enjoy all your work, you know, different projects you're working on and, uh, is there anything new with the newer, you know, the, the, the George Lynch, you know, that used to be the Lynch mob that you changed? Well, yeah. Uh, um, it's a completely new band, completely new kind of way we're approaching the band and all this and that. I have to explain to you earlier at the beginning of the interview. But the band at this point is Jason Sutter on drums. Tribal. Um, Michael Devon on bass. And vocals. Um, Michael Devon's most currently been the bass player for White Snake for the last however many years. But we, we played together previous to that, and um, so Michael and I are friends and known each other for a while. Uh, and uh, we were out as a three piece. Just uh, actually, the show that we did most recently was with Jimmy DeAnda, and uh, who's since gone back to Bullet Boys time but he did that one show with, with Michael and I and we did a three piece thing and uh, as I said earlier as well we add Will Martin to the mix 
so it would no longer be a power trio except for the first show coming up in Virginia uh, coming up on June 5th or July 15th which is a show with Doc and some other 80s bands one of those kind of regional 80s festivals um, yeah so uh, the band is uh, George Lynch and the Electric Freedom well, George, this has been a great conversation, and it's one, like I said in the beginning, I've been wanting to do with you for quite some time. And, you know, thank you for, you know, allowing this to happen because I think it's an important conversation, and I think it's an interesting one, and I think it needs to, you know, more of these conversations need to be had. And I just, you know, thank you for coming on and doing this. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's a, like I said, a lot of these things are, you know, um, it's nice to, mix it up as you have with music and other issues so it balances it out a little bit because you know a lot of people want to hear about a variety of topics and I think that's healthy to be able to kind of cover a lot of bases so um, thank you for giving me a forum to speak my mind about other issues other than music um, or less related to music I should say well, anytime you want to come back on and, and uh, you know, talk about things that, you know, that you're passionate about and that you want to, you know, tell people about, you're more than welcome to come back on anytime. Thank you, Jay, very much. Okay, well, look forward to uh, um, the feedback, and hopefully people will um, start a um, thought process of dialogue uh, amongst uh, your listeners and, you know, wider community about things that matter i appreciate it george thank you very much once again everybody that's george lynch i'm jay scott this is the hook rocks the ultimate rock community podcast stay safe stay healthy stay strong and we will talk again soon thank you
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 